Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for the noise of children leaving the sanctuary to to go learn about your word. And Lord, we pray that you would impress that word this morning upon their hearts, that they would grow up to be men and women who chase after you. Thank you, Father, for our offspring, whom you have knit so wonderfully together in their mother's wombs, all so different and all so very alike. Lord, we praise you for your word given to us. We thank you for those red letters. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles up. Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, 17, it says, Now, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. In the last two weeks, we've seen Paul's example to us, his dedicated bond-servant attitude for the sake of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, he said, serving the Lord with all humility, tears, trials. 
And we saw his commitment to preaching and teaching the word of God for what it is anywhere and everywhere he had the opportunity. Verse 20, how I did not shrink. He didn't retreat from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching anywhere. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Elders, are we being imitators of Paul? Are we prepared to give up ourselves for the service of our Savior and his gospel kingdom? Are we diving into the word of God as frequently as we can, meditating on it day and night, preparing for the day so that we won't have to shrink back from declaring anything that is profitable, but we will be prepared? Today we're going to look at another thing, another key quality of a man of God, something else that Paul exemplified for us. Look with me at verse 21. Paul says he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a loaded verse. Hang on to your hats. I got a lot to go through. Paul testified. That word comes from the Greek word marturos, from which we get our word martyr. If you know anything about a martyr, it's somebody who died for their cause, right? Paul declared emphatically and solemnly the truth about Jesus Christ. He bore witness to the gospel with sincerity, regardless of what anyone did to him because of it. Remember all the the trials that happened to him with tears? With all humility, he served the Lord through his actions as well as through his words. You see, the gospel is not a cliche. It is not a word that should just so easily fall off our lips without really fully understanding exactly what it entails, exactly what it means. It is not something that we should take lightly. Paul and 11 other apostles and men and women through history have died for this gospel. They've given up their lives. I've said it before, this is not just fire insurance that we keep in our pockets so that we can go about our lives every day just as they were. The gospel is the most life-changing experience of our lives. If it isn't, we don't get it. If the gospel has completely transformed how you think, you have no idea what the gospel is. We are a priesthood of believers. Paul testified. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 20. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Sometimes, yeah, few are called to be 
martyrs for the sake of Christ. Elders, believers. We are here for an Acts chapter 1 verse 8 purpose. God has left us on this earth to bear witness to the person and works of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the Lord's plan for the salvation of all mankind and all creation through his son, Jesus Christ. This is it. This is the most important message anyone will ever hear in their entire life. This message means eternal life or eternal death, depending upon what they choose to do with it, right? It's the most significant thing in life. And he gave us the gospel that we would testify to it, that we would bear witness to it. So, so what is this gospel? God created a world, and after he created it, God looked upon his creation, and he said that it was good, right? He placed Adam here with his wife Eve, and they sinned against God. Choosing to do the one thing that God said, just don't do this. Just don't eat of the fruit of this one tree. That's all I ask of you. And that's what they chose to do. And God had declared to Adam beforehand that the punishment, the wages of choosing to do that, to sin against God, the wages of that was going to be death. Adam had the warning beforehand. And we need to understand, this isn't just good storytelling. The Garden of Eden isn't just a metaphor, but it's a reality. And we all know in our hearts to this day that desire to shirk authority that has been placed upon us, don't we? That is sin dwelling in our hearts, and that is what God tells us about in his word. It's passed down to us from that first man, that first Adam. These are biblical, historical facts, and God gave us Scripture. He gave us His Word that we would know and understand the truth about ourselves and the world around us. We are sinful. We live in a fallen world. God tells us the the reason for this in the first three chapters of Genesis. Believe it. And if you think it's just good storytelling, look around you. Who does good? Who does good all the time? Who does not have sin of their own in their lives? Is this world not cursed? Does it not have thorns and thistles? Do we not have to work hard now, fighting weather, storms, earthquakes, things like we had to face with that Houston team, right? The world is fallen, it's cursed. Sometimes we have to fight other people in order to just produce what we eat and what we earn. Doesn't that line up with what God has told us in his word? Has not God told us the truth? Can you, can you not see that, that God's word rings true as we examine the world around us? And let's not let the, wa- the, the world water down the absolute truth and and fact of the historicity of God's word. And the world tries every day to water it down and, and make it, oh, that's a nice story. It's not a story. In his word, God has lovingly made us aware that there is a day of judgment coming. This fallen creation, it will all come to an end. 
And if we are still found in our fallen condition, in our, in our sinful condition, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes peace and joy no matter what path you've chosen to get to God. Mm. So that's not what my Bible says. God has told us it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We will be judged. Eternally separated from the God who created us and loves us. We will be judged and it will mean an eternity in hell. And as Jesus describes hell, it is a furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is an awful, forbidable, terrible place. We need to understand the consequences of our sin before a perfect and holy God. Look at them full on in the face. I know people don't like to talk about hell, but we need to look at it full on in the face because the good news, that gospel message, it it isn't really good until we realize just how bad the bad news is. Why do we need to be saved if we don't realize we need to be saved? what we need to be saved from. I say that God has lovingly made us aware of this day of judgment that is coming, as awful as it will be, because he has also, in his word, made us aware of salvation from that day. He's given us an out. He's given us a gift. See, in God's word, we read that we are all sinful, and we see that in the world around us, don't we? Romans 3.23. And from that sin, we deserve death. That is the wages or the punishment for our sin before a perfect and holy God. Romans 6.23. But Jesus Christ, those two beautiful words, but God. God in the flesh came to pay that price for us in our place at the cross. Romans 5, 8, he he tasted death for all of us. That comes from Hebrews. But, But he tasted death for us all, even while we were still his enemies. Even while we hated him. See, your sins can be nailed to that cross of Christ as he knew your name when he went there. He knew your name before the foundations of the earth. And your sins can be nailed to that very cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, or 13 to 14. All you need is to recognize your sinful condition before a holy and righteous God. Acts 3.19 And accept that sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your place. Because anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 Our sins before God in Christ can be forgiven and and the punishment paid by him in our place. But let's remember that no one comes to the Father except through Christ alone. John 14, 6. Salvation from the judgment of God, which is coming, is in Jesus Christ. This is his world. And this is his salvation plan. 
Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, not by the religious or, or the good works of mankind. We don't get to formulate our own way. And to this gospel, we must be able and willing to bear witness, sincerely, solemnly, honestly. We need to be willing and able to bear witness to both Jews and Greeks. Verse 21, it says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the world has sold us a false bill of goods. The, the idea that some people are superior to others. Be it because of the color of their skin or, or cultural superiority or, or some kind of social status that makes them better than someone else. The, the world has sold us an, an us versus them kind of mentality. This culture of, of sin and self-centeredness by the way of things like evolution and otherworldly philosophies. It's a backwards world. What does God have to say about these things? Paul took the gospel to both Jews and Greeks. See, Paul took the good news of salvation across cultural and social constructs and boundaries. This was the very mission that he had been given by God. This wasn't Paul's idea. This was God's idea before Paul was even saved. On the day that Paul was saved, God told the man Ananias to go and take care of Paul because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's all the nations other than the Jews. Kings? Who's greater in the world than a king, right? And the children of Israel everywhere, everyone a chosen instrument to carry the gospel to all nations and across social boundaries. Why? Why does God care about everyone, all people? Why should he desire all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth as he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4? And why, then, should we care? Why should we break free from this cultural call around us to racism and social elitism? I will give you three reasons. First, God created all mankind in his image. Secondly, we are all related. Yes, all related. And thirdly, God designed the church to be a mixed bag of people. So first of all, God created all mankind in his image. Genesis 1.26, what does it say? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That triune God created you. He knit you together different than anything else in creation. You are the only thing made in his image. And being made in the image of God, all mankind then retains an innate value in his eyes. In speaking about how we use our tongue, James condemns us for how we talk poorly about anyone who has been made in the image of God. 
He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. Why is it important? Because those people were made in the likeness of God. It doesn't just say certain people, special people. All mankind, from the very beginning, we're made in the image of God. People have an immense value to God because we have been created in his image, created by him and for him. Having created Adam and Eve in his image, every man, woman, and child descending from them. Guess what? Look to your left. Look to your right. Brother, sister. We are all related. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. We've gone through this verse. Paul pointed it out. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters. Every last one, physically and in Christ. No matter how different they might look from you. They are your family. See, the world teaches us that, that there's multiple races and that each evolved at a different rate of speed. And, and if you take that for what it says, then some are superior to others, aren't they? Some races having advanced faster than other races, evolving at a different rate. This is the evolutionary lie that mankind is used for extreme prejudice and abuse of other human beings since its inception. Think Hitler. God, in his created order, teaches us something different entirely. Pick any two people in the room. Go ahead and look around a little bit. Pick two people. Pick two very different-looking people, as different as you can find. Look at them carefully. Let me give you a quote from a Ken Ham book. He said, Geneticists have found that if we were to take any two people from anywhere in the world, the basic genetic differences between these two people would typically be between 0.2 and 0.9%, even if they come from the same people group. So pick two people that look very different. Now to pick two people that look very the same, and the difference between them is the same, between 0.2 and 0.9%. That's a minuscule amount, isn't it? This means that the entire genetic difference between any two people is less than 1%. And the characteristics, the physical features, and the genetic code that we see as dividing us as races only amounts to 0.012%. Those things that we see as making us so very different, that's about 1 one-hundredth of 1% 1 of all our genetic code. Isn't science fascinating? What does God say? Funny how science, empirical science, lines right up with what he says. He has created us after our own kind. We come from a common ancestry. 
God's word lines right up with what genetic science declares today in the study of DNA. We all bleed red. We are all related from Adam to Eve to the family of Noah to this day. The only race is the human race, genetically and biblically speaking. This is why a big Germanic white guy could receive a kidney transplant from his black friend of African-American descent And the doctor who did the testing on the kidney to be transplanted, because they have to do all kinds of testing before they can do a transplant, the doctor who did this testing between these two very different-looking guys, I tell you what, he said you couldn't find a closer match. They are brothers in Christ and, and genetically descended from the first created man and woman with all the superficial differences between these two men, they are a near-perfect genetic match. And a year and a half later, the kidney is functioning quite well. Because, you know what? Melatonin does not make a man or a woman. God created all mankind in his image. We are all related, and God intends his church to reflect these facts uh, as he designed the church from its foundation to be a mixed bag of people. We've seen in the book of Acts how the church began with a mix of men, women, old, young, fishermen, even a tax collector and a prostitute. Let's throw in a little spice, right? These were told to await the Spirit of God who would empower, guide, and direct the movement of the church. And the Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember what the day of Pentecost was like? A day when Jerusalem was filled with people from a a vast number of backgrounds, from, from little places all over the known world, who spoke many varied dialects and came from distinct cultural backgrounds. And the Spirit arrived that day and caused 3,000 of these mixed people to realize the truth of the gospel. 3,000 culturally and socially different people. They came together and they formed the body of Jesus Christ. They formed his church. Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. When we are in the presence of God, we're going to see what the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation. He said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Altogether, one voice. And in view of all these things, Paul has set for us an example, one that follows that Acts chapter 1 8 call to bear witness 
to the person and works of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to all people, regardless of their skin color or social status or any cultural differences that we might think we see. There cannot, there dare not be a hint of racism or elitism on any grounds before God in the church body. It doesn't belong. It is not of God. Galatians chapter 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The book of James warns us against social elitism. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you harbor, I know it's not something we talk about, it's, it's shh. If, if we harbor any kind of racial or social bitterness in our hearts, if we think that we are morally, ethically, socially, culturally, or racially superior to anyone else before God, we had better start rethinking ourselves. We are one body in Christ. Every last one of us. A brother, a sister. That by the grace of God, not of ourselves. Elders, let us set the example to our flock, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ, willing to cross any and every social, racial, or cultural boundary for the glory of God, having that Christ-like love for our neighbors that we are called to. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? These are our brothers and sisters. They are family. Family isn't just the people you're going to gather together with for Thanksgiving. It's the people in this room. No matter how different they may seem to be on the surface, let's not see each other as different, but instead through the eyes of God in Christ Jesus. In, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's pray.
Is there anyone here who, having heard the gospel this morning, the fact that we are fallen, the fact that we are sinful, the fact that we need a Savior, and having heard about the the opportunity, that gift of salvation in Christ Jesus alone, that, that gift that God has given us, did you feel your heart stricken? Do you understand your fallen condition? And do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Let's all bow our, our eyes and, and our, keep those eyes closed. Bow your heads. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand? Today is the day of salvation, the opportunity. Father God, we praise you for the hand raised. We praise you. For your word that speaks to our hearts. Lord, we praise you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would grow us according to your word to be a church that lives by your word and not by our own selves, not by our own conditions, but Lord, to give you the greatest glory that we possibly can in every possible way. Lord, we need your spirit. We need your strength. We cannot do this by ourselves. Lord, we give to you our church family. We thank you for our church family. Help us to be bold, to carry this faith with us through our days, out into the world, into our soil, to plant those seeds of faith. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.